Well, it's great to be here with you, and I know I see some familiar faces here. The Lord has just blessed me to open the opportunity to share with you guys, and Pastor Richard and I have just become really good friends over the years, and I have such an appreciation for him, his leadership, his love for the Lord, his ability to teach, and it's really kind of a struggle for me right now not to be a little jealous of him as he is in Israel enjoying the Holy Land, and it's a great opportunity, and maybe you're feeling like, oh, I wish I could be there too. I was thinking, man, it'd be so great to be there to see the Sea of Galilee and all the things that are there. So next time they go, start saving now and plan on it. It's a trip that you will never, ever forget. And in the meantime, you're stuck with me. So I will say this, and I really mean this. I don't ever, I don't say this when I go speak at other churches, not that I do that all that much, but if I was not pastoring where I'm pastoring now and I have my choice, I'd want to be part of this fellowship right here. I really would. I, I just so much love the, the freshness and what's going on, the love that you have for one another. I just think it's a very sweet and sadly unique thing in the body of Christ. And so I think you're onto something really, really good uh, being here at Monrovia. And so... What I'm going to ask you to do is turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Judges, as we go through today's text, and we're going to be studying something today I think is extremely practical. It's valuable, yet neglected, freely available, but also painfully elusive. We're going to be seeking out the will of God. We're seeking God's will. And how many of us through our times and lives have stopped and thought, you know what, what does God want me to do now? You see, our lives are filled with difficult choices, challenging decisions, uncertain paths, even painful circumstances. And we know that whatever decision we make, It's going to have a consequence. Whether it's good or bad, we know that pretty much all the decisions we make have some kind of consequence to them. And for that reason, sometimes it's a little scary. And maybe you're a little like me. There's times that I really lack decisiveness. I I struggle with direction. I fear making a decision. And, And if you have moments like that from time to time, or maybe all the time, I really believe this study might have something for you as we go through the life and the decision-making process, the, the seeking process of a guy named Gideon. Now, I, I really love Gideon's story and, and kind of the, the backstory behind this, and I won't have time because there's quite a bit of text we're going to go through, but the first 10 verses gives the setting for what's going on. The people of Israel have rebelled against God as they do continually through the book of Judges. And so God would continually raise up a group of people to come against Israel as a form of discipline, chastisement. And in this case, it's a group of people called the Midianites. And the Midianites are just tormenting Israel. They're killing off their livestock. They're destroying their lands. And they would wait until harvest time would come. And as they're ready to harvest their grain and bring it in, That's when the Midianites would come and steal everything. And so they impoverished the nation to the point where they, by design of God, would call out to the Lord 
and just in repentance say, Lord, deliver us. And, and then the Lord would raise up a judge to deliver the people. And that's really the story behind what's happening here. Gideon is that judge. Gideon is that, that, that person chosen by God to deliver the people. And he is probably one of the most unlikely people you would ever expect to lead the nation. I mean, a total shocker, a total surprise. This guy was timid. He was kind of bungling. He was, he was in a sense, fearful. And yet God is going to raise him up as a mighty man to, to do really great things. And he struggles with that whole concept. Now, the story we're going to pick up in verses 36 through 40. And so now that you know the backstory, this is what's going on. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God, Judges 6.36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so when, the, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And so we, we know Gideon's story. We know what he's been called to do. We know he's struggling with it to the point where he really puts God to the test. He puts a test out there. And so he says, Lord, I don't want to question you, but I really need to be sure about this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay a fleece out on the ground. What a fleece is is simply a piece of wool. It was, it was just like what we would call material. It's cloth. And if the, gro- the ground in the morning is dry and this fleece is wet, I'll know this is what you want me to do. And so he wakes up in the morning and the ground is dry and he picks up this fleece and probably felt kind of heaven. He wrings it out in a whole bowl full of water. The thing is soaking wet. It's like, oh, I think I get it. Lord, you don't mind. I'm going to ask you one more time. Let's just reverse it in case it was a fluke. You know, let's just completely reverse everything. And so in the morning, if the ground is completely wet and this fleece, this cloth is dry, I'll know this is what you want me to do, that you want to deliver Israel by my hand. And so he wakes up in the morning, certainly he looks down on the ground, it's wet, and he picks up this cloth and it feels like it just came out of the dryer. It's completely dry. It's like he knows there's not, a, there's not a drop of water in this thing. It's like, okay, I get it. Lord, you're going to do what you're going to do. And I now know what you want me to do. How do I know? The do, the D-E-W, the do told me what I'm supposed to do, D-O. And so I titled today's message, What Do I Do? D-E-W. Because it was in the do that he knew what? Yeah, exactly. You got it. And so, we're trying to determine the will of God. There's this phrase that people use called, I'm going to put out a fleece. I don't think people use it too often anymore, but I've heard it said from time, I'm going to lay out a fleece. 
And the idea there is, I'm going to put out a simple test to see what God wants me to do, what, what His will is in a particular situation. And I want to suggest to you, even though we've just read what Gideon has done, and the Lord met him in that, I'm not questioning that, I want to suggest to you as we go through the text, you're going to see and learn, we're going to learn together, that the fleece, this test, this confirmation of God's will isn't the best and certainly isn't the only way to determine what God wants us to do, what His will is. In fact, there are some real limitations to using a fleece to determine what God wants us to do, to determine His will. What would be wrong with using a fleece, setting out a test and saying, God, answer the test this way or that way? Well, I think what you see, you're, you're putting God to a, a, a limiting test. He's like, Lord, is it door A or door B I'm supposed to go through? Well, what if there's a door C that he wants you to go through? What if he doesn't want you to go through either door? And yet, when we lay out a fleece like that, we put this test out there and say, Lord, what do you want me to do, this or that? We automatically limit the choices and God might have. I, the Lord has surprised me many times in this life by putting something there that I didn't even expect and it was so much better than what I could have even thought of. So fleeces limit God. Secondly, fleeces can be manipulated. We can lay tests before God that can be manipulated. Now, I don't know if you have a, a weakness for maybe a particular type of food, my, my wife is a chocolate fiend. She loves chocolate. That's her weakness. I have other weaknesses. I think one of them is, you know, donuts are okay. But when you take a donut and you fill it with Bavarian cream, I mean, and you cover it with a little layer of chocolate on the top. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And, and I know how much I love those things. I mean, I could gobble down two or three of them easy. But I know what would happen if I took two or three of those and ate them on a regular basis, uh, you would end up calling me gordito, which means I'd be a little heavier than I am now. And that wouldn't be a healthy thing. That's not wise. And so in this life, you have to exercise a little bit of self-control. And I know I have to do that. I know that I couldn't get and eat every donut every time I pass by the little donut shop by my house. So convenient, so wonderful. And so knowing that maybe the limitation is, let's say, one a, a week, or maybe one every other week, or one a month, or whatever the test is, whatever the, you know, the restriction is. But, you know, I could pray. And I could say, Lord, if it's okay for me to have that cream-filled donut today, I know I've had a couple this week, but if it's okay with you, Lord, if it's your will, just make a parking spot right in front of the donut shop there. <laughs> Right there by the door. And if that parking spot is there by the door, I will know you are giving me the green light. I'm going to go have my donut. Wouldn't you know it on the 12th time around the block? There's my spot. You know, it's there. The Lord has answered my prayer in the affirmative. I got what I wanted. You see, a fleece can be manipulated. We can do that. Thirdly, I think that sometimes fleeces can create more confusion than answers. Let's say, I, I, I love hearing churches do missions. I'm glad you guys are going to Mexico. We go to kind of a similar area. It's such a great thing. 
And like you, sometimes we do even longer trips. You know, sometimes these trips are a week or two weeks, and, and, and they're great, great experiences, but they are a bit more pricey. You know, a, a, long, a short-term mission trip to another country may cost you $1,000, it may cost you $1,500 because of airfare and all those things. And so let's say you're really, they're going to someplace in the world, there's a team being raised up, they're going to go, and you're hearing it, you're like excited about it, you're thinking, man, I could do that. I'd really like to do that. That sounds so exciting. I want to be part of that team. The problem is I don't, have the, I don't have the money to go. I could raise it. I can try. And so we put a, a fleece out before the Lord saying, you know, the, the deadline is, you know, three months from today, you have to have your money in. That's my fleece. If the money is there, then I know God wants me to go, and I'm going to go on that mission trip and serve him with all my heart. And so the, the day, the deadline day comes. What if you have 95% of the money? What if 95% of the funds are there? Does that mean that God didn't want you to go? Or, or is it saying, you know, you've got to take a little step of faith, or maybe you have to make a little more sacrifice, or maybe you have to, you know, maybe you just got to take, go for it and see what, you know, that confuses me. And so fleeces have their limitation. I want to suggest to you it's possible for a fleece to, to provide confirmation but not necessarily determination of the will of God. They, they're, they're great in confirming what God is doing in my life, but to determine it, to, dis, to, to make this, not necessarily the best. And as we go through the chapter together, I think we're going to see kind of a process that we can go through that will help us to determine the will of God. Now, before we dive into that text, though, and before we dive into the process, I just want to throw out a warning that I believe all of us, many times in our life, many, many, many times in a week or a day, will be saying, God, what do you want me to do in this? What is your will? There are right ways and wrong ways to do almost everything, and certainly there's a wrong way, wrong ways to determine God's will. And the first wrong way to determine what God wants me to do is to say, and I hear people say this and it drives me nuts, I'm just doing what my heart tells me to do. In my heart, I feel like, in my gut, I feel like I've got to do this thing. Hey, let me tell you something. The Bible in Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And so if my heart is telling me, if I'm going to listen to my heart, I'm almost certain I'm listening, would I purposely listen to somebody that's deceitful and wicked? Probably not. You know, if I was to try and find out, hey, you know, give me some advice. Who can I ask? Well, let me find the most deceitful, wicked person I can find. I'll ask you. I don't think any of us would do that, and yet the Bible says that's exactly what our heart would do. And so we don't want to listen to our heart. The second mistake we can make is to look at what everybody else is doing. Everybody does it this way, so hey, you know, I think this is what God wants me to do. The Bible says in Exodus 23, verse 2, we are not to follow a crowd to do evil. Just because a crowd is doing something, because a majority is doing something, doesn't necessarily make it right. In fact, as you look through the Bible, what the crowd does so often, more often than not, the crowd is wrong. And so we don't want to just do it because other people are doing it. Third, we have to be careful not to base what we're to do in our seeking of the Lord and wanting to be obedient to Him, do His will, by getting advice and counsel from a person that is not a believer. 
That is so dangerous, and I see people do that all the time. It's like they're, they're making huge, important decisions, and where do they go to? They go to a person, you know, a person go, man, I'm going through real difficulties in my marriage. I've got some major problems. What are you going to do about it? Well, my buddy's been divorced three times. I'm going to go ask him. Uh, hello? I don't think that's really a good thing to do. And yet so often people will seek the advice of somebody that doesn't even serve the Lord and doesn't know the Word and say, you know, the Bible says this. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the ungodly. You're blessed if you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You want the counsel of the godly. And I think one of the dangers we have as believers is this. We, We fish. We fish for the counsel we want. And I've seen people do this over and over again. You know, they, they have godly counselors. They have people that know the Word, that love the Lord, that will tell it to them straight. And sometimes we don't like to hear what that person says, so they just keep looking and looking and looking until they find the person who says, oh, this is what I would do. This is what you should do. And it's completely off the wall, but they say, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. That's what I was looking for. That's what God wants me to do. Big mistake. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs twenty seven six says that the bruises of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Hey, you know what? If you've got a friend that will bruise you in love and tell you the truth in love, even if it hurts, you've got a good friend. No, enemies will stab you in the back. But a friend of mine used to say all the time, hey, you know what? Friends stab each other in the front. And so, you know, if you have somebody come and they go, poo, you're like, oh, that hurt. But it's true and you needed to hear it. Hey, you got a good friend, right? Bruises of a friend better than the kisses of an enemy. Not literally, okay? Not literally, but, you know, spiritually and in counsel, we need that. And so diving in, we're going to take a look at the better part of Judges chapter 6 this morning. And I've given you kind of the story, the background in verses 1 through 10, so I kind of assign that to you as homework. You can read that today when you get home, so you can kind of fill in the blanks. But today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 40 together. And there are actually six things that we're going to look at, six individual things. And so if you're a note taker today, I'm going to kind of lay out the simple outline of where we're going so you can follow along and then I'll kind of elaborate on them as we go. So verses 11 through 16, you can write the word foundation. Foundation. Second, in verses 17 through 21, verses 17 through 21, you want to write the word perspective. Perspective. And that's verses 17 through 21. Verses 22 through 24, it's the word direction. So 22 through 24, direction. Verses 25 through 32, the word you want there is obvious. So obvious for verses 25 through 32. Verses 33 through 35, lead and empowered. And the word lead is not like the metal lead, L-E-A-D, but lead like we're being led somewhere, L-E-D, and empowered. And then lastly, verses 36 through 40, the word confirmation. And so that's going to be our our direction, our kind of roadmap through, through this text today. And so why don't you join me? We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 11. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And so here's Gideon, and he's threshing the wheat. And when you would thresh wheat in that culture, you'd go to the top, the top of a hill where you'd get a good breeze coming across, and then you would beat your wheat to loosen the husk that was around it. You would throw it up in the air, and the wheat and the chaff would separate, and the wind would catch the chaff, being kind of a shell, blow it away, and what would fall back to the ground is the wheat that you would ultimately bag and consume. What you want. You do that on the top of a hill. But because of the danger the Midianites presented to the people, if you're standing up on the top of a hill, threshing your wheat, and they from a distance go, hey, see that guy on the top of the hill? Let's get him. And so what Gideon is doing, he's, he's down in a wine, he's down in a hole. You don't get a lot of breeze down in a hole, but you choose your poison, if you will. And so he's choosing the, the poison of going, yeah, I'm going to thresh the wheat down in this hole. You know, I'm not going to get anywhere fast or anywhere at all, but you know what? At least the Midianites won't attack me. And so we meet Gideon. He's kind of fearful. And he's afraid. And he's in a difficult situation. And he's, he's struggling. And what happens now in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And I think Gideon looked around like, you know, one of those, who are you talking to? You couldn't be talking to me. You mighty man of valor. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. You shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And so we're talking about the the will of God. How do we find that? What's the first thing? Well, the first step, the foundation of it all, is real simple. If we want to determine the will of God, first we look to the Word of God. The Word of God. Now understand that Gideon didn't have a Bible to refer to. The book of Judges was still being written. The Old Testament wasn't even complete. They didn't have a written text to look at. And so God in those days would come to people and would speak to them audibly. He would give them messages directly. And so Gideon, three times in this text, has heard it said, it's been said, the Lord said to him, the Lord said to him, the Lord said to him, verses 12, 14, and 16, the Lord said to him. So Gideon received a word from the Lord. Now maybe you are thinking, you know, I've never heard a word from the Lord like that. I've never heard God speak audibly to me. And I would say, I'm with you. 
I can think through my life as a believer, 30-something years now, and I can think of this probably one time that I actually sensed, not maybe in my ear, but so strongly, it was like, it was like somebody was speaking to me in my ear of what to do. That was from the Lord. And I'm not saying that God doesn't do that. He absolutely can. And maybe you're more sensitive to me than me. And, and that happens regularly. That's great. But so many of us would say, you know, I never heard the Lord speak to me so directly. I, the Lord doesn't speak to me. I would suggest to you, yes, he does. Certainly he does. And the reason why is you and I, we have a completed Bible. We have the Word of God. If you haven't heard God speak to you recently, go home today, open your Bible, read it out loud, and you have God speaking to you. You really do. You have His voice. And it's better. In some ways, it's better because, at least for me, I've got a terrible, terrible memory. I I just forget everything. And so if you tell me something, chances are pretty good in about 10 seconds, it's going to be gone. It's gone. I've forgotten it, but you know what? If you put it on paper, if you write it, then you know what? At least I can go back, I can review it, I can be reminded, I can think about it, I can ponder it. You see, it's better, at least for many of us, to have a written word than God speaking to us specifically. Understand this. God's will for you will never contradict God's word to you. And in case I said that wrong, let me say it again. God's will for you will never contradict God's word to you. It's all here first. And if you sense, I hear people from time to time say something that's kind of like, you just know it's not right. But they think, you know, they'll say something like, I think, I've had multiple people, both men and women, husbands and wives, say, you know what, I think God wants me to leave my husband. God wants me to leave my wife. And the reason why, why would you say that? Because I am not happy in this marriage. And because I'm not happy and I know God wants me to be happy, you know what? I'm going to pull out of this marriage, right? Uh Uh-uh, wrong. The Bible doesn't say God wants you happy. The Bible says God wants you holy, not happy. And so you deal with yourself, and you get your marriage in order, you invest in it, and you know what? You will be blessed in your marriage, but God has said other things about marriage that override your happiness, like He doesn't like divorce. That your marriage is something you invest in, you're committed, you're joined together. You see, that's what the Word says. And so it is definitely not God's will. Now, there are there biblical reasons to end a marriage? There certainly are. But you see, this whole idea that I just get to do what I want, I get to pick God's will by how I feel, Uh uh-uh. You see, it's God's word will always determine, and it will say, hey, this is the limitation of my will. It always function together. God's will for you will never contradict his word to you. And so that's the foundation. That's where it starts. But then in verses 17 through 21, we see that there's perspective that is gained. Gideon gains some perspective, and and notice what happens. He's just heard this word from the Lord to him. You're going to do this incredible thing, and he realizes I am the most unqualified person in my nation to do it. 
I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. I am a nobody. I am a zero. Why am I being called to deliver God's people? Well, what does he do? Verse 17. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket. He put the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay, it, lay them on this rock and pour the broth. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed. I think Gideon does something right here. He's just faced with this thing that he doesn't know what's going on, how is this happening, how can this be true? And his first inclination is I need to bring offering to the Lord. I need to worship the Lord. I need to bring sacrifice to the Lord. I need to get my, my head around what God is doing by getting closer to Him. One of the things I, another thing I love about your church is you guys are a worshiping group of people. I love that. I, I love worshiping churches. I love it when there's people that say, Matt, I love, I need to worship God. That is a good, good thing. And here, Gideon's first inclination is, whoa, you know, this is heavy. Stay here. Let me go. And I'm going to prepare an offering. I'm going to bring it back to you. I want to worship. I want to sacrifice. Now, what does worship and sacrifice have to do with the will of God? I think there's two problems that take place when we're seeking the will of God. The first is finding the will of God. And the second is submitting to that will once we know what it is. And worship really does have the answer to both of those. I won't turn you there because I know we're going to be looking at a lot of Bible texts today. But in Acts 13, verses 1 through 5, it's this picture of, to me, what is the most dynamic church in the New Testament, the church in Antioch. What it says about the church there is that as they ministered to the Lord, the Lord spoke and said, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have. In other words, as they were in worship, as they were ministering to Him, they learned what God wanted them to do. The way I would say it kind of, so we can remember it, is adoration and celebration lead to revelation so often. It's as our mind is fixed upon the Lord and we're seeking after Him in prayer and in worship that he He gives us the direction that we need. And and so we see that there in the church in Acts. We see that in what Gideon is doing. And so he's coming before the Lord. He's bringing his sacrifices to the Lord. And through that, he's going to learn what the Lord wants him to do. The other side of it, though, the other problem is this. Once we know what the Lord wants us to do, then the challenge is doing it. Because sometimes that's not so easy. Sometimes the flesh has to die. Sometimes, you know, there's things that have to change, that God needs to do something, and things are going to have to change. And maybe it's something uncomfortable or giving up something we really have become 
bonded and attached to that is putting in bondage, and, and it's like that has to go, and it's like we have a hard time with that. Sometimes it's just asking us to go deeper, and we're not ready to. And yet in worship, as we kind of capture the bigness of God, the greatness of God, it becomes easier to say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. In fact, here's a little trivia question for you. I looked it up this morning. I just wanted to make sure that my head wasn't kind of in outer space. And I think I'm right on this one. How many times in the Bible do you see Jesus worship? How many times do you see Jesus in a time of, of, of worship and, and, and praise? And, and from what I can see, I can only find one time. There are, I don't think there's others. But I've only been in the Gospels, I only find one time that Jesus is singing, which is interesting to me because worship is so important. And the one time that Jesus sings a hymn is right between the time of the Last Supper where he's given the bread and the cup and said, you know, it's the Last Supper, he's getting ready to go to the garden and, and you know, wrestle with the Father if this cup can pass for me, Lord. Let's do it that way. But what does he say? At the end of that prayer, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Doesn't he say that? Now, I don't want to make too much of it. I don't want to make nothing of it. I just want to suggest to you that the one time we see Jesus worshiping is right before he goes into this very difficult time in the garden where he has to wrestle through some things and ultimately accept the will of God. And that's the one time you see Jesus worshiping right before that. In the same way, when we worship, man, it just focuses our attention upon the Lord. We start to realize how great He is, how loving He is, how awesome He is, how in control He is. And then we can say, Lord, Your will be done. And so it's really important. Worship, sacrifice, are, are just honoring Him. It helps us to gain the right perspective. Now, number three, Direction. In verses 22 through 24, when we want the will of God, most of the time what we want is, I want to know what God's direction is for me. How do I know what He wants me to do? How am I supposed to know, you know, to say yes or no, maybe, you know, I don't know. How do I know? Direction. Take a look at what happens here in verse 22. Now, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there um, to the Lord and called called it the Lord is Peace or Yahweh Shalom. To this day, it's still in Ophrah of the Abizrites. And so this whole setting is troubling to Gideon. In fact, now he realizes that, you know, I'm just not talking to anybody. I am in the presence of God. This is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, I think as you read the text, it becomes really obvious what we're we're talking about. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, an Old Testament appearance of God called a Christophany or a Theophany. And so it's God appearing to man. And as a man appears before God, one of the certain things that happens is... I'm a dead man. Kind of like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You start to realize in the presence of God, I'm dead. We see that in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. You know, John falls like a dead man. You know, it's not a very common thing. 
And so here what we see is Gideon is concerned about this whole thing. He thinks he's going to die. And the Lord comes to him in verse 23 and says to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Peace be with you. He calls the place, the Lord is peace. You see, the Lord met him in a place of peace. And that is how the Lord directs us. It's really an amazing thing. In fact, I was reading, I'm reading Colossians in my own devotions. I just happened to be on this particular passage this morning. And so I'd like you to turn there to Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Take a look at it with me. I'll give you a second to get there because this one's really worth having underlined or noted in your Bible or you know, highlighted or however you do it. But, but this is one that I want you to get to and see for yourself. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 15 together. Colossians 3, verse 15 says this. But let the peace, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, in which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. And so what Paul makes clear is this, as he's talking to the Colossian church about how to get along with one another, how to, how to treat one another, he says this, he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And the word rule is the same word that we would use for a referee in a basketball game, an umpire in a baseball game. You know, the, let the peace of God referee in your hearts. In other words, well, if you think about what a referee does, what an umpire does, that, that, that person decides, they make the determination what's good and what's bad, what counts and what doesn't count, what's fair and what's foul, what's right and what's wrong. That's what that person does, that referee, that umpire. And what the Bible says is let the peace of God umpire in your hearts. In other words, you could be facing a decision. I do this from time to time. I face a decision. And although things seem kind of right, I just don't have a peace about it. There's just no peace there. It, uh, it might make sense. It might be logical. People might think it's a great idea. But for some reason or another, there's no peace there. And if that peace isn't there, what I've learned is I'm not going to do anything. I won't do anything because I don't have peace. Because God can remove His peace from me. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And so if that peace is gone, that's the Lord kind of saying, I'm going to put you in check right here. Be careful. Don't move. There's been other times where things didn't necessarily make sense logically. It didn't make sense on paper. And, you know, maybe it wasn't even the, you know, the, the counsel that people were saying, this is what you got to do. But man, there was a peace that this is the way it needs to be. And in that peace, prayerfully, slowly moving forward, I've seen God bless that and meet that. In fact, Philippians talks about it where he says, you know, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding can rule in your hearts and minds. In other words, God can give a peace that doesn't make sense because it's His peace ruling in our hearts. So what am I saying? I'm saying that God's peace is what directs our steps. 
Not only, but it fits into this entire package of his word and worship and now his peace there or taken away so that you can be in the place God wants you to be. See, I'm convinced God wants me here. But let me tell you something, it's not easy for me to be here right now. The reason why is because my dad, who I loved so much, he is in ICU right now. And he is literally, they've got him connected to every machine imaginable to keep him, you know, to to, to help him and, and, you know, still trusting the Lord. But I mean, it's just a very touch and go situation right now for my family. And so some of you would say, well, why are you even here? And the answer is because the Lord gave me peace about being here. And I could have pulled out. I could have called Pastor Barney and said, hey, bro, got some bad news, man. But that wasn't what the Lord gave me to do. You see, I have a peace about being here. It's not that I haven't been there. I've been there a lot with him by his side. And I will be there. But you see, you think, why are you here? Because God gave me a peace about being here. Where his peace is, it's good. It might not be easy, but it's good. And I have people coming to me, you know, with all good intention, saying, are you all right? Are you okay? And I think the idea is, are you ready to have your breakdown yet? Are you ready to lose it? And that's like, no, I'm not ready to lose it. And the reason why is because I already know this is too big for me. And that's the beautiful thing about the peace of God, is that he meets us when we know it's too big for us. This is way too much for me to handle. And I've already, I'm learning day by day to commend things to the Lord. My Lord, this is yours. I'll do what I can. I'll do what you want me to do. But this is too big. And because of that, I can have peace. And I can enjoy this time here with you guys. It's a blessing. But he directs our steps. And then verses 25 through 32, back in, back in Judges 6. Take care of the obvious. That's the word here. Notice what happens. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second, young, uh, second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, uh, and cut down the wooden image that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among the servants, his servants, and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he does it by night, does a night shift. And, and so take care of the obvious, because as much as Gideon wants to know, I'm doing the right thing, God's in this, he wants me to deliver the people, there's something, there's like this glaring problem because you go to his father's house and there is this altar and this image to, to Baal, this false god. And the Lord says, you've got to tear that down. That, that false god, that idol needs to go. And, and you, know, you want to know what I'm, you're going to do? You first get rid of that. that. That's why it's like we need to deal with the obvious. We need to deal with that. I really believe there's times that God doesn't reveal His will 
to us because we haven't done the obvious things that we know to do. From time to time, I, I, I do counseling like pastors do. And so I'll have a couple sitting and, and they've got all kinds of things going wrong. And, and, and when it comes down to I'm super simple. I usually in counseling will give people one or two. I don't want to give you a list of things to do. It's too much. I'll give you two things. Two things. And we'll start there. So often the two things are, why don't you start going to church and reading your Bible? Okay, uh, let's just start there because usually things are broken down because those two things aren't happening. So let's just start simple. Start showing up for Bible study and start reading your Bible on your own. Okay, two things. Well, I'll get a call a week or two later. When can we have another appointment? And I'll ask, well, how are we doing with the two things that I gave you to do? Well, well, you know, I tried once or twice, and tried to make it to church, but, you know, I just got so busy, and the game was on, and, you know. And I'll usually say something along the lines of, well, what's the point? What's the point? If you haven't done what I've asked you to do, which are simple and obvious, why, what's the point of going any further? Now, I don't get too many callbacks for, for counseling, <laughs> but that's the reality. If you haven't done these simple things, what's the point of doing anything else? can't go any further. I'll just repeat myself over and over again. You know, there are things that God has given us to do that are absolutely for sure His will. And we know because it's written in the Word. Now, I know I'm, I'm up against the clock, and so I, I don't want to keep you long. So I'm going to go through these quickly. If you want to keep up, great. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I'm going to just kind of rifle through some passages, but Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, notice what Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so God wants our lives to be transformed not conform to the world. That's His will. Ephesians chapter 5 is another one we see. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And so Ephesians 5, 15 says this. Verse 15 through 21. See then that you walk circumspectly or wisely, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is, the will of the Lord. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So you could go on, but the will of the Lord is that we would be filled with the Spirit and living wisely in this dark world. Another one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, 4.1, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is, here it is again, the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so he says, my will for you is to live in purity. 
to live pure before me. And then another one right here, page or two over, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, where he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so here are things in the Bible that are, if you ever wonder what the will of God is, let's just go to the ones that are black and white. He says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to to be filled with the Spirit and living wisely in this dark world. I want you to be living in purity. I want you to be rejoicing and prayerful and thankful. And you think, man, if I did all that, I wouldn't have any problems. Exactly. That's the point. If we do what is clear in the Bible, if we do what His will is that we can read, the other things kind of take care of themselves. I'm really convinced that God is much more concerned about who we are than what we do. He's more concerned about who we are than where we go or where we live. Because if He has who we are, then He can, he can, he can work with the rest. He can direct our steps. But so often we put these other things before. Hey man, where am I supposed to work? Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to do? And we haven't said, Lord, what is your will for me that I can see in your word? And in that... It's like, well, we expect him to show us all these things when we won't do the things he's given us to do that are clear and obvious. Hey, we need to do the obvious. I think that's a a big part of just seeking and knowing the will of the Lord. And then notice what happens in verses 28 through 32. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built, so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, that was Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die because he was torn down in the altar of Baal because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he, Baal, is God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day he called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. You see, it's an amazing thing that happens when a person says, I'm going to do the right thing. And that's what Gideon did. I'm going to do the will of God. How it had an impact on the people around him, even his own dad. His own dad says, you know, I had this image, this altar to Baal, but I mean, got torn down and if Baal was really God, he should be able to kind of defend his own altar. So, hey, you know what? The guy that stands up for Baal, let him be put to death. Something has changed because Gideon has changed. Verses 33 through 35, led and empowered. What is happening now is Gideon is definitely taking some major steps forward. He's moving And now, verse 33, then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But, watch what happens, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up 
to meet them. This guy's ready to go to war now. He's ready to sound the trumpet and take a stand. And what happened to him? He says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Gideon is now a Spirit-led man. And now he is led and can do what God has called him to do. See, that's exactly the place you and I need to be. We need to be led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish God's will. Now, from time to time, I will leave the country, we'll do some work in another country, and given the choice, if you gave me the choice between having a GPS or a guide, I would take a guide every time because a GPS can fail you. Just getting here this morning? My goodness, I didn't think it'd be that hard, but I mean, my GPS had me circling all through the neighborhoods back here and all over the place. I don't think it was really the best route. But that's what my GPS told me to do, so I listened to it, and eventually got here, so that's cool. Much better to have a guide that knows where he's going, he's been there, he knows where to go, he knows the shortcuts. I'd rather have a guide. The Spirit of God wants to be our guide. We are to be led and empowered by the Spirit. In fact, I won't turn you there for the sake of time, but Romans 8.14, we need to be led by the Spirit. We're the children of God. Now, the bigger question then is, what is that like? What does it look like to be led by the Spirit? Now, I don't want to make it sound nearly as mystical as people make it sound sometimes. I love the way Pastor Chuck put it. To be led by the Spirit means to be led by Him in a supernaturally natural way. The Lord leads us in a supernaturally natural way. In other words, as we just say, Lord, I just want to serve you. Take me where you want me to go. He puts us in the places he wants us to be. I think a great example of that was a few years back, years back actually, when I had my, a chance to go to Russia. I've been there a number of times. And I, I went to Russia, but it's interesting because in my community where I, I pastor is predominantly Hispanic. And I don't know if you noticed this. I haven't told them yet. I'm not Hispanic. And, and so, you know, I'm here in this community. It's 80, 90% Hispanic. So the church is 80 or 90% Hispanic. And so I'm thinking I should probably learn the language. I should probably try and get a handle on it. I wouldn't say I'm fluent, but I get it. You know, I can, I can read it. I can understand it. I can get the point across when I need to. And, and so I've been called a Chexican by, by the people at my <laughs> congregation. Honorary Chexican. You know, I'm part Chinese and part Mexican. But the funny thing to me was in this season where I'm really getting a handle on Spanish, the Lord gives me an opportunity to go to Russia. And I'm ministering there in Russia, and here's this sweet sister, this sweet lady. She's a Russian lady, and her husband had taken their daughter. Obviously, they split up, and he took the daughter, this woman's daughter, to Cuba. She, she lost her daughter, literally, I mean, daughter's gone another country, to Cuba as a little girl, and the only thing she has of her daughter, the only thing that she holds on to is this letter that her daughter wrote to her and has been sent back to Russia. Herein lies the problem. It's written in Espanol. It's written in Spanish. So can you imagine the torment of this mom? The only thing she has from her daughter is this letter from her, and she can't even understand it. How frustrating. And so what happens? 
the Lord sends this Chinese pastor from Southern California to Russia, and he's learning Spanish so he can take this letter and say, oh, okay, I got it, and I will take this letter. I took the letter, I translated it from Spanish to English, then I had a translator translate it from English to Russian, and you should have seen the look on this gal's face when she could read for the first time, this is what my baby girl sent. It wasn't the most deep, significant letter, but it was something from her. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit leading his people. Supernaturally natural. No, I didn't see writing in the sky. I didn't hear an audible. It's just, Lord, here I am. Take me, use me. And there I am. And so, verse 30, 36 through 40, don't even have to read it. We read it at the beginning, right? It's the fleece. And now you see how that all fits in. All these things have happened. There are six things total, the six being the confirmation through the fleece. And I want to suggest to you, if we've done the first five, the six is like an option. Like, hey, you know what? If you want to use the fleece, great. But I think we've heard enough with these other things, the word and the spirit and worship and, 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 and the peace of God and then being led by the spirit. When we have that, hey, you know, the, the fleece, take it or leave it, man. You don't need it necessarily. It's good. It's great. But you have this whole, I don't think we pick one or the other. We don't say, well, I, I'll take the word and peace, but I'm going to leave out worship. I think it's the whole package. And we have that whole package. We can determine the will of God. Now, you can close up your Bibles. I want to suggest to you that, uh, you know what? Living in the will of God is the greatest joy that we have. It really is. It's the best. I mean, you might think you've got a plan that's good. God has a better plan. And, and just be careful not to settle for less than what God has for you. You know, in the Psalm, Psalm 106, verse 15, he describes how the people got what they wanted, but he sent leanness into their soul. In other words, they got what they wanted, but because it wasn't God's best, there was a leanness in their soul. You don't want a lean soul. You want a soul that's hearty. And that comes by just saying, you know what, Lord, I want to do what you want to do. Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4 how, you know, we spend enough time doing the will of the Gentiles, doing the will of the unbelievers. We spent enough of our life doing that. But now it's time to live for the will of God. And when you live for the will of God, man, you will look and say, you know what? It may not have made sense. It may have been difficult but to see what God has done, great things He has done to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again. We pray, Lord, that as we leave this place today, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You. I just thank You for the, this, the privilege, really, of just sharing with just a wonderful group of people. And I'm blessed. But we pray that as we leave this place, we've been challenged, Lord, by Your Word to walk in Your will to seek your will and then do it. And perhaps there's people here in this, this room that you know they, they've been doing their own will for a long time. Or they're walking down the wrong path, they're choosing their will rather than yours. Or maybe they haven't even come to you at all and, and so your will for them, your will for all of us is really to just come to the cross. Receive your grace, receive your forgiveness, receive your mercy and then submit ourselves to you so that you can, you can continue your work in our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, before we go, I pray for them, Lord. I pray that if there's anybody here that today needs to come to you, 
either because they've been doing their own will and now they want to do yours, or perhaps they need to come to you for the first time, Lord, you would meet them here. If you're here today, in this moment, you would say, yes, I want to come to Jesus Christ. I want his will in my life. I've been doing my own thing for too long and now I'm ready to do the will of God. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I want to lead you in prayer. If that's you right now, and the Lord is just saying, you know what, it's you. You need to surrender to me. You need to come and do my will rather than your own. You need to receive my forgiveness. If that's you, right where you're at, I'm going to make this invitation brief, but I'm going to make it to you now. Get up out of your seat and stand to your feet. I want to lead you in prayer. Christians, I'm going to ask you to pray. And if you're here and you know that, that the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart, get up out of your seat and stand to your feet right now. And we'll pray together. And the Lord will meet you in this place. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? You're here and you know. Man, it's just opening your heart to him. It's good. Get up out of your seat, stand to your feet. I want to lead you in prayer. The Lord's tugging on you. You know, that's the Holy Spirit. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? You're here and you know. Man, I want to, it's just God's will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just God's will. I don't want to do my own thing. I need to come to the cross. I need his grace and forgiveness, his mercy, his plan for me. Get up out of your seat, stand to your feet, and we'll pray. Anyone else? Awesome. You who are standing, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Just repeat these words, this word, directly, right after what I say. Repeat it. The Lord sees your heart. He hears your heart. Let's pray. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I confess I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he's risen. And I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.